0: Welcome, everyone, to the It's a Wrap with Rap podcast. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversity, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Michelle E. Dickinson, a passionate mental health advocate, a TED speaker, and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking into My Life. After years of playing the role of child caregiver, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. Michelle has spent years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace, a large pharmaceutical company by elevating compassion, causing more open conversations and leading real change in how mental illness is understood in the workplace and in the first responder community. Only one third of those plagued with mental illness receive treatment worldwide. Michelle is also committed to improving the lives of our youth. She is a past volunteer with court appointed special advocates, the Make a Wish Foundation, and serving as a big sister with the Big Brothers Big Sister organization. Her volunteer, her volunteer work led her to creating her own children's program, mm-hmm. Perfect Just the Way You Are. Welcome, Michelle, to the podcast.
1: Hi, Ron. Thanks so much
0: for having me. Uh, Our pleasure. Your advocacy, Michelle, for bringing awareness of mental health is a passion of yours because of your own experience with mental health. Tell us about what you call your trifecta of mental health.
1: Sure. Sure. Thanks for asking. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I grew up with my mother who had bipolar disorder and throughout my childhood, I learned what that was like, um, what it was like to care for someone who had the rapid cycling of, um, bipolar disorder, mania to depression, to, you know, hopelessness, ultimately she'd be hospitalized. So that was the first lens of mental health that I had. And that, that, pretty much um, was the tapestry of my entire childhood, young adult life. Um, But I was adopted, so I never in a million years thought I would ever deal with my own mental illness. I sort of thought I'm immune. I'm not my mother's biological daughter. Um, But fast forward, and I was going through a divorce and I was diagnosed at that point with depression as I was going through that. And so then I had To figure out how do I do this? And I got a really interesting perspective of what life might have been like for my mother when she was depressed. And then the third perspective um, was when I was at my former Fortune 50 company, I helped to build the fastest-growing global mental health employee resource group that really was out to remove stigma in the workplace and bring people together with a shared lived experience or had someone at home that they, they were caring for with a mental illness.
0: Uh, statistics say that mental health illness is the most expensive illness in healthcare. Why do you think that is?
1: So I think when, it, when you talk about mental illness and the, the cost associated with it, I mean, there's so many um there's so many studies out there. A lot of us don't acknowledge um, that it's mental illness that we're dealing with. Um, and then we hit crisis and then we go out on disability. Um, you know, we have a stigma in this country that prevents people from getting care and really helping themselves before they hit a crisis. So oftentimes people do nothing and then all of a sudden, they're at a a crisis moment and then they need a severe care and, uh, oftentimes lose work and go out on disability. And then we lose them in the workplace, um, to a long recovery period.
0: So being proactive would be the way to go, but but they're not doing that.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's our culture and that's our society that opportunity to shift.
0: You have said that $1 spent in investing in mental health in the workplace has a 3 to $5 return. Uh, can you explain how that is?
1: Yeah, you keep employees working. You keep them engaged. You keep them um, healthy in their seat by having, having an awareness and an environment where the narrative around well-being is normalized. You, you know, employees who recognize that they're not doing well and proactively reach out for care, they're going to um, stay engaged in their life, engaged in their, in their jobs. So why not invest a little bit up front to have people be more comfortable with mental health um, so that, you know, we keep everybody healthier on the front end?
0: Do people fear mental illness? And why is the fear of mental mental illness unreasonable?
1: I think so. I think we all have um, you know, the I, I think we all have our, our own perspective around mental health. Like mine's very mine's very different because of growing up with my mother. So I had very much in my face relationship to mental illness. But for the average person who maybe never had mental illness intimately or closely. Uh, connected to them and their family, their lens on it could be painted by the brushstrokes of the media. Um, you know, God forbid we see shootings and things of that nature. And, you know, that has us perceive mental illness as something, a crazy, you know, a a crazy person shoots, shoots up a building,
0: something horrible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something horrible. And it's, it's an unrealistic, um, I think fear because there are so many people I know personally who are navigating their lives and thriving in the face of mental illness. They manage it, they care for themselves, they do what they need to, and they're perfectly fine and perfectly healthy.
0: What do you say to people who are suffering from mental illness themselves or as a caregiver? If you bring it up, are they immediately offended by that?
1: So here's the thing. We all have mental health, and wh- when we start to relate to mental health as either mentally well or mentally sick, we, we make it very black and white, and in reality, we're all gliding across the continuum of mental well-being. Life comes along, knocks us down. We might not be as mentally healthy as we, as we know we can be. Right. So I think, I, I think the, the, the biggest thing is we need to start to recognize we all have those ebbs and flows and those challenges of life. And, um, and it's not on us to diagnose the people that we love. It's on us to extend compassion to them. It's on us to, to check in on them. Um, to be authentic ourselves about our own well-being, because that creates a doorway for them to talk about how they're doing. So when we come at it from the perspective of you look sick and you need this and you've got to get a doctor, it's a very judgmental and a not, not a very compassionate, loving approach. Right. Um, so if you're concerned about someone that you love, that they might be suffering, the best thing you could do is just offer up your ear and just make sure that they know they're, they're not alone and that you're recognizing that maybe their behavior is a little off and you're genuinely concerned um, and and not from a place of judgment because who's going to want to open up if they're feeling like they're being, you know, right. under, under a microscope?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you stated that you were a child caregiver for your bipolar mother. Tell us what that experience was like
1: you know, I didn't know any different. And when I reflect on it now, it was my normal. It was my, my youth was my youth. And, um, you know, having a mother who is sick in any regard, right. She was sick with bipolar disorder, but you could have a mother that you're growing up with who had other, another illness, right. could be alcoholism, could be, God forbid, cancer, some type of other illness. It, it shapes you. And in my case, um, Everything that I could possibly do to keep peace and keep harmony in the home is something that I took on as a little girl, right? So whatever we needed to do to keep mom happy, to keep her okay, to keep her stable so she didn't have an upset and have to go to the hospital again is what I just did. I mean, it was my normal um, until I would go to my girlfriend's house. And I would see the relationship between the mothers and daughters and the normalcy. That was not my, my lifestyle, my, my, my environment. Yeah. Um, And it shaped me. It absolutely shaped me, but it also shaped me in positive ways as much as it did take away maybe from some of the childhood that I, I could have had. But again, I didn't know any different and I did the best I could with what I knew. Um, and found ways to, to get the nourishment and the love that maybe I wasn't getting at home, whether it was through an aunt or a grandmother. We're very resourceful as kids. We, we find ways to get what we need in, yeah. in creative ways. So yeah.
0: yeah, well, that's good that you, that you could do that. Yeah. You have created five steps to cultivating a culture of compassion. Can you tell us what those steps are?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So they're on my website, michelleedickinson.com, and this is aligned with the work that I get to do with the um, corporate space. I work with uh, HR leaders and organization um, leaders to really cultivate uh, compassion in the workplace if they're looking to really have there be more understanding for mental health. So there's a couple of things I'll share, and then you could you could visit the rest on the website. The first is a remit from the organization that they're going to be a truly inclusive organization of people with invisible disabilities. We see it all the time, physical disabilities and accommodations are made for those who struggle with physical, but we have this other invisible disability that no one really talks about that you can't really see. So a remit from the organization that they're going to be inclusive is very important and then backed by policies that support that. Um, that that send a message to the organization that this is how we will be inclusive. Right. Um, One of the most powerful things an organization can do, and I just recently interviewed a CEO on my mental health series. um, I have
0: to tell you about a book I just finished reading. The book, Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life, written by the brilliant, accomplished blogger, author, and mental health advocate, Kit O'Malley provides a finite roadmap and brutally honest glimpse inside the daily frustrations living with mental illness. Sharing her 20-year struggle with jarring and frank openness, the author's time as a psychotherapist provides a fresh approach and ability to dissect mental illness while sharing a window inside her fears, frustrations, the quest for balance, and med stability. Kid O'Malley's writing recounts the two decades it took to receive a proper diagnosis and how her journey gave her purpose. The author balances living with bipolar disorder with her work as a mental health advocate and caretaker of her son and parents. The book is written with compelling honesty and from a place of compassion. She reminds readers that medication can only go so far and that a wide array of tools are needed to keep the illness under control. Kid O'Malley's writing style gives the reader an intimate sense of how bipolar mood swings can both energize and fragment a devoted wife, mother, daughter, volunteer, and professional therapist. The book also reminds us of the importance of self-care in managing a mental illness. Her struggle to define boundaries reflects the painful dilemma that caretakers often experience, especially when they are suffering in silence. Kit's resolve to accept her personal limits brought by bipolar disorder permits others to care compassionately for themselves. Kit O'Malley is an awesome advocate and storyteller. Her honesty shines through on each page of the book. The author's unconventional willingness to share her hard-earned nuggets of wisdom and knowledge is a precious gift to survivors Mental health advocates, caretakers, and anyone interested in knowing about the subject. Balancing Act is a refreshing and original addition to the mental health literature. The book is available from Amazon in paperback and ebook. Information regarding the book will be listed in the podcast notes, podcast Facebook page. And podcast website under the sponsor
1: tab. Is having a CEO go first or having a senior leader in your organization go first. The power they have in telling their story can literally set the tone in the entire organization. So that's like one of the things I always recommend is like have one of your most courageous and well-respected leaders tell one on themselves because it'll bring it down to a very human level. For everyone in the organization, sure. and at, at least the people in the organization will talk about that person's courage to tell their story. And that could open up a dialogue. Um, and then removing barriers to care. You know, we can, um, it takes something to pick the phone up and reach out and get care. And the last thing you want is an employee who finally has the courage to pick up the phone and reach out to be told that they can't see a physician or or a therapist for three or four weeks. So you wanna make sure that if you're offering benefits that you remove those barriers that your people can get the care when they need it.
0: That sounds good. Yeah. Now the CDC says that one in three Americans are dealing with depression or anxiety due to COVID. Uh, The emotional impact of the pandemic is hitting many of us. The United Nations released a policy brief entitled COVID 19 and the Need for Action on Mental Health, citing the deep toll the crisis has taken due to social isolation, losing a loved one, and the economic turmoil from lost income. Now more than ever, we need to normalize the mental health conversation. Would you please give us some mental health and well being tips and resources during this COVID period in time? And touch on setting the home environment to be a place of harmony.
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Wow. This is like the best question I think I've ever been asked.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I feel honored to hear that.
1: <laughs> no, I love it. And actually, just to add to your statistic, it's 42% of the global workforce has experienced a decline in their mental health since the beginning of the pandemic. Wow. Wow. So if we have that many people who are struggling and we don't know what the future holds because now we're dealing with the delta and all these other all these other concerns that are happening across the globe we have to acknowledge and recognize that our people are fatigued and they are psychologically exhausted from this yeah. whole experience so yeah, many absolutely. of us are right so yeah so there's there are a lot of things that can be done um, one of the things I And I can share some tips, but, you know, it's the organizations that are reaching out to their people and doing just a little bit more that is going to breed a sense of uh, loyalty and that employees are going to feel cared for. That is something I hear time after time at the end of my workshops is, wow, my company felt the need to do a little more so that I feel cared for in such a really hard time people are caring for their families, they've lost so much. So a couple of things that people, um, that I share in my resilience programs are some of the basic things that we've, we've heard. Really be mindful of how much consumption of the news and social media we're doing. You know, it's very important to stay in tune with what's going on and to know the facts, but the over absorption of that information can play a very negative, um, can have a very negative toll on our emotional well being. Um, I
0: can attest to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We just have to control it. I'm not saying bury your head in the sand, I'm just saying control it. Right. And be mindful. I mean, the, one of the things I, I teach. Is be mindful of how you're feeling. You know how you wake up in the morning and at my age, I'm I'm getting older now. I, I start scanning my body for physical pain, right? Okay, so what hurts now? What hurts this morning? Why don't we do that for our well-being? How am I feeling? The yeah. simple self-audit of how am I doing today? Am I am I feeling a little irritated? Am I feeling a little frustrated? Am I feeling sad? That self-awareness gives us the ability to reach out and talk to someone that we love and care about, who we know they, they care for us, just to check in and say, hey, I'm feeling this way. Because if you get present to that, then you have the opportunity to do something about it before you go into the negative viral, you know, spiral downward. Right. So you want to make sure you're performing self-audit and reach out. You want to make sure that you're engaging in things that bring you joy. So whatever your hobbies are or whatever, whatever, you know, is going to have you step away from the stress of your life. That's important because it's going to help you restore balance for many, many months. We couldn't travel, so we couldn't get away. So we have to look for those things that bring us joy that we can temporarily like sort of escape from to and, and, and recharge, um, good, good sleep hygiene, good diet. Making sure we're exercising our bodies because that feeds your brain, um, right. those endorphins, and help us feel good. Right. Um, minimizing the amount of alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant, so you know, watching our consumption there. So there's a lot of really great things that you can do. And the thing I always hit home is we have more control over our well-being than we think. So if you turn off the news and you start eating better and you start. Being a stand for your sleep hygiene, you get enough sleep, and you do some things that you know are going to help you feel good physically and emotionally. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be much better able to deal with whatever comes at you.
0: And that that would really cultivate the resilience, wouldn't it? Totally. What issues issues pertaining to mental health have you found out about people uh, working from home and employee burnout?
1: Yeah, that you know, it's a very interesting thing. When we started working from home, everybody was, um, there was a sense of freedom, like, ah, I get to do my life and I get to work from home. And it's kind of a nice thing. But what the research has shown is people are working around the clock because they are able to work from home. So they're not having the bookends of the day, where you get in your car, go to the office, bookend, all the right. one, work all day, get in your car, come home, bookend two life and work was very black and white, right? Yeah, yeah. Now everything is blending together. People work all day, then they have dinner, then they go back on their computer. Before you know it, they're working, they're constantly working. And then you throw in the monkey wrench of you can't go on an airplane and travel and get a vacation in. So now you're home and you're doing a staycation. So some of the things that I recommend for people is you, only you can create those boundaries. Only you can say, I will work from this point to this point, And then I will shut my computer off and close my office door and engage with my family. Only you can do that.
0: That's true. Nobody,
1: nobody's going to say to you, okay, it's time to turn off your computer. Like, right. unless you have an amazing boss, who's like, all over <laughs> you. so you have to stand for yourself and say, I'm going to work from this time to this time. I'm going to get a stretch break in. I'm going to, I'm going to go for a walk at lunchtime. Only you can do that, and you have to do that for your well being. Um, and that will help you unblur those lines between work and home. And then you will be able to get the rest that you need and restoration so that you can come back more intentional the next day. So it's to your best interest of being as productive as possible to step away from work, recharge, and come back.
0: Yeah, I think uh, every person has to just tell themselves, hey, I. I need a block of time to exercise. I need a block of time to rest. You know, I need a block of time where I shut my computer off.
1: Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. a, A great tip. Tell us about the issues you are seeing from people returning to work and having to deal with anxiety. And what can employers and employees do to deal and alleviate that anxiety?
1: Yeah, return to work anxiety is very, is very real um, and not everybody is going to be ready to return to work when an organization says our doors are open. I will say that since the Delta has been um, so prevalent, the big return to work was supposed to have been after Labor Day, but many of the organizations that I have been close in close communication with are pushing that out to November. So they're not even forcing their their employees to come back now until a few months down the road. But for those of you who do have the requirement to return to work, there are things that you need to remember are in your control and things that are not. So the first and foremost is the open communication. If you are not comfortable or if there's a lot of anxiety that you're feeling, you really need to engage with your leader or your HR professional and express that the communication has to be two ways, but if they don't know how you're feeling, then they can't do anything about it. So be, be aware. You won't be the only one raising this. So if you're not comfortable, speak up. Um, the other thing is we have more control over our health than we think. I know that we are you know, concerned about the Delta and, the, and getting COVID, but we actually have control over wearing a mask, sanitizing our hands, bolstering our immune system, making sure that we're eating well, sleeping well, drinking enough water, we have control over that. Social distancing, there are things that we can do that can have us sort of remember that I have control over this. I might not have control over what they do here or how it is there, but I have control over keeping myself safe. Um, and if you, if you feel like you take those steps and you still are feeling extremely anxious or nervous or whatever, reach out and get, have a conversation with a therapist and say, how do I deal with this? I have to go back to work. And there are techniques that they can teach you to help you alleviate your anxiety and, and really get to the heart of what is the concern. So don't feel like you got to, you know, muscle through it. That's what that's what you know. Support is there for.
0: Okay, you also focus on the first responder community—the police, firefighters, military, paramedics, rescuers. What issues regarding the mental health stigma are most prevalent, and how is your work progressing in that community that we all need so desperately?
1: Yeah, you know, this is a population that um, sees some of the some of the most horrible things, and I have have the privilege of working with a retired, uh, police sergeant who, uh, struggled herself from, uh, PTSD. And, um, so some of the things that happen oftentimes are, you know, the old school mentality that you don't talk about how you're doing, you know, it's, it's just as prevalent in law enforcement and first responder community than, than, than exactly our society deals with. So, Um, It's normalizing that conversation and, and remembering what's at stake. If you don't acknowledge, because, because the biggest challenge we see are gravitating to unhealthy vices to deal with, whether it be PTSD or some type of strain or stress from what they're dealing with. It's those, it's those tendencies to hit the bar, it's the tendencies to, you know, do lean on those unhealthy vices instead of I need to acknowledge how I'm feeling and get support. So the work that we do is really to help them understand how that compounded stress manifests in the body. If we don't acknowledge it and, and deal with it. Um, so it's, it's even more amplified in the first responder community, the stigma, and we have, we have work to do to really normalize that narrative. So they're comfortable getting support. They're comfortable reaching out for a therapist, maybe before they even need it, because you never know what they're going to see on the job. So they need to have access to a clinician, um, in advance, even before they, they encounter something awful.
0: Now, whenever mental illness is discussed in the media, it's like we said, it's always because a horrible thing has happened. People act as if this is a one in a million experience. Now, considering that so many people are living with mental illness themselves or are a parent or a child of someone with mental illness, what can we do to normalize mental illness and make it more relatable?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we, we have, we're, actually in a very exciting time, I think, for mental illness, because dealing with the pandemic and dealing with being quarantined, um, a lot of people for the first time are experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety because we're human beings and we're um, community, you know, individuals. We we thrive on connection and we lost that. So more and more people struggling with it is has force the conversation to come to the surface. So I'm optimistic that just this experience and talking more openly about our well-being is going to is going to take us forward in, the, in a better direction. Then you have the Olympics and you have these amazing athletes openly talking about their emotional well-being. Yeah. And that's exciting because what they do is they make us feel like, "Oh my goodness, this amazing athlete struggles, it's okay for me." To, to identify and, and, and get support if, if they're talking about it. So yeah. I think we're in a very exciting time. I think we all have a role in reducing the stigma though. And the way we do that is just by courageously talking and being authentic ourselves, right? Like, right. I don't know. I mean, I have no problem saying the other day I sat on the couch crying because I was not having a good day. I have no problem. And if I tell you that, there's going to be an access for you to say, You know what? I was feeling the same way. And before you know it, we're talking about our emotional well-being, not mental illness or mental health. It's just our emotional health. Right. Right. So we have a we have an opportunity to lead by example. We have an opportunity to check in on people. We set the tone when we are checking in on other people, and that could cause a ripple effect that they'll check in on their people. So never assuming people are okay and always checking in and and reminding people that they're not alone is is a great way to help us all normalize mental health.
0: Good tips on on normalization. Uh, You started a children's program titled Perfect, Just the Way You Are. Can you please tell us about this great initiative of yours?
1: Sure, so this program was born out of a leadership course that I took um, and it was part of actually my healing journey. So growing up with my mom who was emotionally unavailable she really didn't remind me throughout my, my young years that I could do whatever I wanted, that I was limitless, that I was perfect just the way I was. So I said, if I could make a difference for young kids out there, what would it be? And I really wanted them to be present to their greatness and to their limitless potential. So I created a program that would really help them understand how to nourish their minds and how to nourish their body. And so that program, um, was was born out of my own healing and has reached thousands of children across New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. Um, just really helping them understand how to eat well, understand um, compassion, empathy, self-love, um, confidence, all of the things that we with the soft skills that we really want our kids to have that round them out um, around their well-being.
0: Sounds great. You've been very busy. You've authored a book titled Breaking Into My Life. Please tell us what prompted you to write the book and a little bit of what it is about and what was the goal of writing the book.
1: Sure. So I was minding my own business, working in a corporate job, thinking I was just going (laughs) to retire into the sunset. And someone nominated me to give a TED Talk um, and tell my story about my mom. And this was something I never spoke about, like never spoke about. It was just I survived and I'm a contributing member of society. That's the victory. But this woman who heard about my story nominated me. And before I knew it, I was on the TED stage telling my story about my mother and how that shaped me. And after that 10 minute TED talk, people sort of came out of the woodwork, out of the darkness, and wanted to talk to me because. They saw a little bit of their story in my story, or they grew up with a parent who was sick, or they were sick with a mental illness, and there was this immediate access and an openness for them to talk to me. And I said, "Wow, the power of storytelling! Yeah, the power of storytelling." So I said, "Well, if I could do that in a ten-minute talk, well, what if I wrote a book?" So I sat down and I decided to write my memoir with the goal to continue to humanize mental health because. People needed to know that my mother was a beautiful, loving human being, and she was not her diagnosis. She then had something called bipolar disorder, but she was, she was still who she was. And I wanted people to have a better understanding of mental illness and to walk through that journey with me of what it was like to care for her. Um, And maybe I could do my part to normalize the, the awareness about mental illness. So that was really the goal.
0: Okay. What are some of the most uh, common mistakes people with mental illness uh, make in regard to seeking help?
1: They think that they can do it all by themselves. They, they probably are too embarrassed to reach out for care, or they're probably afraid of what care looks like. Um, okay. And, or in my mother's case, they self-medicate. My mother um, would gravitate to food. I know other people with mental illness who won't go to a doctor, but they gravitate to alcohol. There are unhealthy vices that can numb you that, that is the risk of not reaching out and getting adequate care and, and thinking that you can do it on your own. And it's 10 times harder. And then, and then, you know, chances are an addiction will follow and it just doesn't need to be that difficult when care is available.
0: Michelle, what are you most excited about going forward in your advocacy?
1: Yeah, I am really clear that we are so tired from this pandemic and there's so many people suffering who maybe had never experienced a mental health or a mental imbalance in their lives until now. And so I'm really committed to working with organizations to recenter their employees, just recenter them, remind them that they are in the cockpit of their lives in the face of everything we're dealing with. Yeah. That they, they, if little small things, little mindset shifts, strategies and tools and daily routines, those things combined together can really help people feel better. And, um, I just want to do more of that work and prevent people from suffering in silence.
0: What message regarding mental health awareness uh, would you like to leave with us today?
1: It's okay to not be okay.
0: Okay to not be okay.
1: Yep, it's okay um, to not be okay. It really, really is. More of us are suffering than ever before. So don't feel like you're, you're the only one and, um, and don't suffer alone. Take someone with you up into your head and talk about it.
0: Michelle, how can people contact you?
1: Sure. You can reach out to me through either my corporate website, which is careforyourpeople.com, or through my um, my personal website, which is michelleedickinson.com.
0: All right. I am going to provide those links in the podcast notes. Thank you, Michelle, for taking the time to be on the podcast. This podcast features extraordinary people doing special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome adversity and wound up on top. And you are definitely in that category. I wish you all the best going forward in your work. Uh, We would appreciate comments and suggestions to improve the podcast. They're always welcome. Uh, You can email us at itsarapwithrap at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, it's a rap with rap. The website is itsarapwithrap.com. We are on YouTube. And we're titled It's a Wrap with Wrap, the podcast uncut. So you can see all the podcasts on YouTube if you'd like. Thanks everyone for listening and sharing the podcast to your friends and family. We want you to stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.